times when I have something like that that I'm kind of processing is eventually it ends up in my books and that's what happened with the it girl except obviously because I'm a crime writer and you know writers are generally fairly unpleasant people <laughs> I took the the situation in the book to kind of the nth degree and made it as sort of a, as horrible a dilemma as I possibly could which is what happens to poor Hannah so you know rather than just being involved in a, a sort of minor court case where she has to make a decision based on the evidence you know she is the person who is the crucial witness in an incredibly complicated case to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block. On this episode, we're chatting with New York Times bestselling thriller author Ruth Ware, whose latest, The It Girl, was an instant New York Times bestseller when it debuted in July. Today, we'll be talking to her about the book itself, her writing career, overcoming challenges, and even a game of murder and mystery that you and your friends can play at home. I'm Ron Block. And I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm so excited to be chatting with Ruth Ware here, not least of all because we share a publicist, Jessica Roth, who has been singing her praises for as long as I've known her. But I was a Ruth Ware fan long before that. Her novels grab you by the throat from page one. They are just extraordinarily propulsive in the best possible way. Absolutely. Ruth's best-selling thrillers include In a Dark, Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, my favorite, The Lying Game, the Death of Mrs. Westaway, The Turn of the Key, and One by One. They've appeared on bestseller lists around the world, including the Sunday Times and New York Times, and have been optioned for both film and TV. Ruth is published in more than 40 languages. Yep, 40. Wow. And she lives near <laughs> Brighton, which is about 50 miles south of London on the Sussex coast. She's joining us from England today. Welcome, Ruth. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And what a lovely introduction. As I'm British, I'm sitting here, you can't see, but sort of blushing and, and generally feeling very awkward. But it was lovely to hear. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, we were so thrilled when, when this worked out for you to come and join us. This is especially the it girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> you had me go until the last page. Good. That's really what did. we aim for. It doesn't always work out, but I'm <laughs> I'm always very pleased when we manage to pull the wool over people's eyes. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. I love the books where, you know, you think it's this person, then it's that person, then it's this person, then it's that one. And it doesn't add up till the well, end. Well, we I, all love so a red herring. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so before we dive 
into chatting with you. We'd love to hear a bit about the book, which seems quite a fitting title as you seem to have become the it girl of the thriller world. <laughs> Although different different than the people in the book. That's yes, right. not that kind <laughs> of <a> girl. <laughs> Can you give us a quick overview of the book? Yeah, I would love to. So uh, my main character is Hannah. She's a bookseller. Um, she's living in Edinburgh with her husband, Will, who's her college sweetheart. They're expecting their first baby. So on the face of it everything is pretty idyllic but you quickly learn that Hannah has quite a traumatic past when she was at university her college roommate April was murdered and in fact Hannah found her strangled in their shared dorm room the college porter John Neville was convicted largely on Hannah's evidence and now 10 years later back in the present day in Edinburgh uh, John Neville has died in prison uh, still protesting his innocence and on the face of it this should be good news you you know, it should free Hannah up to close a really painful chapter of her life and, and get on with things and, you know, look forward to this new life that she's bringing into the world with her husband. But in fact, what it forces her to do is face up to the fact that she has never been completely happy with John Neville's conviction. Uh, there are questions that she's never been able to answer. There are things that never quite added up. And when a podcaster comes sniffing around with bits of information that Hannah had no idea about 10 years ago, she is forced into the realisation that not only did she possibly make a mistake which resulted in an innocent man dying in prison, but more than that, April's killer is possibly still out there and it could be someone pretty close to home. So yeah, that's not that's none of that is spoilers. That all happens in like the first two chapters. <laughs> okay, so beyond this elevator pitch, what's the book really about? Oh wow, good question. Well, usually like my books have some sort of core or some sort of phobia of mine or some sort of worry that I'm I'm nibbling about and often some kind of social issue that I'm bothered about, something that I'm sort of, you know, reading about in the news or or something that I just think needs a little bit more sort of thought on my part. And this book is no exception. And I guess not the phobia. This, this is not, you know, The Woman in Cabin 10 is very much a book that's about like a personal fear of mine, which is the idea of seeing something, reporting it truthfully and not being believed. This book isn't isn't about a fear in that sense. But I wasn't I was probably halfway through before I realised that actually what I was really writing about was um, probably something which happened to me um, several years ago now. But I was called up for jury duty. I went into it sort of quite, I don't know, quite blithely in a way. I was sort of like, you know, oh, this is a, a very important chance to do my civic duty. And, you know, I feel very proud to be asked to be part of the justice system. And, um, all, you know, all that was true. And it is a really important thing to do. But um, I found it really, I don't want to say traumatic because I think that overstates sort of my part in things, which was actually, you know, a very sort of privileged, insulated way to encounter the justice system. But I, I found the responsibility really weighed on me. You know, I wasn't sleeping and I took it really seriously. And I think I wasn't alone in that. I got the impression that most of my fellow jurors felt a similar kind of weight of responsibility. But I think that what really impressed me was the fact that I 
came to this case in a really kind of, you know, as I said, like a really sort of insulated way. I only had to deal with this for two weeks and then I was able to go home. And, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a case nearly as serious as the one in the book, but the people who were there as, as witnesses and defendants and victims, you know, they had a much more bruising encounter with the justice system. And really, no matter what the verdict was, nothing was going to make things okay for them. They were going to go home and have the same problems and the same hurt that had happened to them before any of this started and this this really really bothered me and I suppose it must have played on my mind over the years and and usually what happens when I have something like that that I'm kind of processing is eventually it ends up in my books and that's what happened with the it girl except obviously because I'm a crime writer and you know writers are generally fairly unpleasant people <laughs> I took the the situation in the book to kind of the nth degree and made it as sort of as horrible a dilemma as I possibly could which is what happens to poor Hannah so you know rather than just being involved in a a sort of minor court case where she has to make a decision based on the evidence you know she is the person who is the crucial witness in an incredibly complicated case and things go wrong she you know she says what she saw what she thinks she saw truthfully but it turns out to have been a mistake that ends up in a major miscarriage of justice. And I think for me, you know, for me, that would be, abs- I don't think I would ever sleep again if that had happened. I would never rest until I found out what the truth was and if I could possibly put it right. So that's the kind of, that's the sort of personal side of it. But I think, you know, there are lots of kind of social themes, lots of things that I'm sort of nibbling around in, in the book as well, in terms of, you know, class and inequality and and how people present to the world versus the people we take at face value and the people that we mistrust and lots of complicated themes which aren't I don't think they're really overtly addressed in the book necessarily but they're all stuff that worries me that ends up getting kind of you know floating to the surface in the plot oh it comes across so beautifully though too every one of those themes and what a great backstory thank you for sharing that yeah it's fascinating because you know I think about this a lot with my own writing too for me I feel like the things that I, that are gnawing at my mind, the things that are bothering me, the things that I need to work through somehow surface in my work, even though I don't realize I'm doing it. It's almost like in retrospect, I can look back and say, well, of course, that's why the plot took this twist. And in fact, I, you know, when we were preparing for this podcast, I had read um, an interview with you in the New York Times in which you said some fear or phobia or personal terror of my own is seeded through the pages of most of my books, which is kind of what you just addressed. I'm curious how deliberate that is on your part. Is it is it something that you realize that you're working through or that you're reflecting on as you write? Or is it something that just sort of surfaces on its own? It's a good question. It's mostly completely unconscious. I mean, I think with with the woman in cabin 10 it was probably a bit more conscious than most in that i knew it was a it was a an issue that had been in the news a lot in the run up to me writing the book you know court cases where it was a he said she said situation and where the the she was a young drunk woman and it really bothered me the way that two people's word ended up being weighed so very differently by the justice system so often and that was something that I knew worried me and 
having been on occasion a young drunk woman, you know, nothing particularly <laughs> bad ever happened to me, thankfully. But I think it's something that most people think about as they go through life. You know, it, it would I be believed? How well would my word be weighed? And that, that I think was something that I knew I was bothered about. But very often, as you say, you know, it's something that comes bubbling up from your subconscious. And certainly with the it girl, it wasn't a, I never sat down to think I'm going to work through my, you know, qualms about the justice system <laughs> in a novel. It was it, I was probably halfway through before I sort of thought, huh, I guess this is really about how blunt the justice system can be as an instrument of, uh, you know, restore, restoration. And yeah, so I I know when I sat down and to start to write the novel, that wasn't in the forefront of my mind. But I think exactly as you said, you know, it's I, I sort of think of it a bit like dreaming. You know, sometimes when you're really stressed about something and you wake up from a dream and you've been, I don't know, like, you know, swimming against a riptide or something like that. And you're like, huh, maybe this is to do with the enormous pressure of work that I'm battling against, except often in, yes. in books, it seems to be a much more, much more literal version of that. So. <laughs> I do always think my books are a bit like free therapy on some level. You know, you yes. come out of them feeling like really get some very cathartic. You've worked through lots of issues and you feel great. It's it's so true. But then I also feel like after you finished writing the book and you know you have to kind of let that character go and move on to the next, there's almost this grieving process that happens. You know, like I've been through the free therapy, but now I have to move on to the next phase of my free therapy. Yeah, no, it's so true. And especially when there are characters that just really get under your skin and that you yeah. get to love. And I think that's the great grief in a way of writing standalones is that you have to say goodbye to them. But I like to think of them still out there. I kind of wonder, you know, what they're doing every now and again. And I, I sort of think of them as like friends that I used to know who you occasionally see popping up on Facebook and you wish them well and you hope that their marriage is doing OK and that, you know, they're not drinking too much and whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i love it i want to go back just a little bit and talk a little bit about the setting for the book so one of the things that you do really well is to choose and then really really expertly execute the perfect setting to bring the book alive i think you excel in creating claustrophobic and eerie worlds in which the strings are pulled tighter and tighter this is no exception can you talk to us a bit about what made the setting of oxford so perfect in this novel well yeah there so there are there's really two key settings in this novel and obviously one's oxford and one's um edinburgh where the present day so the book is split into two sections for anyone two, who hasn't right. read it two two narrative strands there's a before strand and an after strand and the before strand is the 10 years ago at oxford university and it's told in alternating chapters with the after strand which takes place in the present day um in edinburgh and i didn't go to oxford university so that was always a bit of a bit of a hubris i guess on my part because uh, it's you know it's a an an environment that has been written about a lot there are so many novels set at oxford and some real classics it does feel like an enormous act of hubris to sort of feel that your book needs to be added to that teetering pile particularly when you have no personal experience of it but i think when i knew that i wanted the before strand of the book to be set at university oxford was the obvious choice and i never really wavered from that so i went to manchester which is a very different 
university experience. You know, it's a huge, sprawling university that takes tens of thousands of students every year. So it's a great place to go to university, but it's very different from the Oxford system, which um, is based around colleges. And you, when you apply to Oxford, you apply to a college, you're accepted or rejected by that college. Um, and if you get in, then you live in that college. You have rooms in the college where you sleep. You have a, a dining hall where you eat. Um, you have most of your tutorials within the college. So there'll be a tutor who's often a member of the college who will teach you. You socialise in your college. There's a bar. And really, it, it can become a very claustrophobic atmosphere because the colleges typically aren't very big, even quite a large Oxford college might only take 300 undergraduates. So if you get together with someone in your first term and then break up with them, you know that you are likely going to be eating breakfast, lunch and dinner with that person for the next three years. And that might be fine, but it might not be depending on how your breakup went. And added to that, of course, they are just really, really beautiful places. You know, they're surrounded by these high medieval walls. There's typically only one entrance in and out, which is the porter's lodge guards the entrance and overlooks it, which becomes an important plot point in the novel. Um, and they're just, you know, they're, they're incredibly stunning ancient buildings. So I think, you know, for all of us who grew up hoping that we would get our Hogwarts letter one day, Oxford is probably the closest that most of us will ever have to that kind of glorious, you know, gothic architecture in real life. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it was always the place that I wanted to set the, nov the novel in terms of the kind of, the, as you say, the sort of claustrophobic atmosphere, the sense of enclosure. But I think also, more importantly, perhaps, one of the interesting things about going to university is that often it's the first time you encounter people who are radically different to you because you know if you went as I did I went to a very ordinary state school so most of the people there were in a pretty sort of similar income bracket to me there wasn't really anyone who was hugely wealthy we all were geographically very similar because my town only my school only served the town where all the kids lived and it was a small town it was a small pretty white town with no mosque and no synagogue so everybody who lived there was pretty culturally similar and going to university was the first time when people were sorted not by an accident of income or where they happened to be born but by their intelligence and their aptitude for a subject and their interest in studying it for three years and that meant that you suddenly got a wild diversity of people you know and and at Manchester that there was you know, I met people who went to private school. I met people who were much wealthier than me. I met people from other countries who'd come to study um, at Manchester. But I think at Oxford, that disparity is even larger. And I remember a friend of mine saying that she she rang me up and she said, there's um, a girl on my landing who's the daughter of a countess. And I sort of thought, well, I did, like, I did know that countesses existed in real life. Like, theoretically, I, I do understand <laughs> that they're not a mythical being, but I certainly would never have expected to meet an actual countess, let alone be, you know, go to university with their daughter and be like three doors down. So I think Oxford just really exemplifies that enormous disparity of background that you are suddenly all in the same environment and from a writerly point of view that creates friction and friction 
is inherently makes for interesting plots. So, yeah, so Oxford felt like the perfect setting for the before part of the narrative. That's awesome. And it really comes across, well, of course, I didn't go to Oxford, but I went to a school where there was a lot of that. And you brought out so much of the stress of college life and the relationship building. And it just, it like, it took me back and I almost didn't want to go there. But I did. <laughs> oh, dear. I don't think it was, a, yeah, there's a certain amount of triggering for people. I think the other thing about Oxford is that everybody who goes there, and this is, this is true for a lot of colleges, of course. And certainly I've had some correspondence for people who are like, yeah, I, I remember this and it, it was not good, is the fact the the people who end up there are typically the people who were the best in their class at school you know they're the brightest they're the best they were the ones who were always top of the class and suddenly when you get to Oxford or you know or I'm sure Yale or Harvard or any of the top tier schools uh, you are in a class entirely composed of other people who also were in that bracket and only one of you is going to get to be top of your new class and that some people rise to that challenge but some people find it extraordinarily upsetting and difficult and yeah I think I didn't have time to go into that hugely in the book but I think that was a pretty complicated experience for most of the people I spoke to who had been to Oxford. (laughs) That's interesting. You know, that was such a great explanation of setting and why you chose to set it at Oxford. I I wanted to talk about another story decision, and that is why you chose the two timelines. So during the first timeline, Hannah is just starting college and later she's about to become a mother. Those are the two, the the before and the after, um, very firmly grounded in those time periods. What made you choose those particular stages of life for your story to play out against? Well, I love a dual timeline novel and I've written uh, quite a few, although some of them are not split by 10 years. They're much sort of closer in time. And typically when I've written it before, I've done it in a much more kind of fluid way. You know, there's a lot more segueing back and forth and there's a lot of memory and there's a lot of experiencing stuff in the present. And then it sort of bleeds into a flashback. And this time... I didn't do that. And that was a narrative decision right from the start, right from when I started writing the book. I split it into these two very discrete timelines, which never really overlap. And it took me about half the book to realise that that's because Hannah's life is completely fractured by what happened to her when she's at university. And the person she is before April's death is completely different to the person she is afterwards. And her life has been defined by that fissure. So therefore, it felt right on some level for the manuscript to reflect that. So the two the two timelines are very abruptly separated and you switch back and forth from them in in. I, sometimes I think quite a disorientating way, although that's hope that's deliberate largely. But in terms of why I picked those two stages, the university timeline was always going to be set at uni. And I think for me, that's because it was one of the defining moments of my life, you know, when I became an independent person for the first time and I left home and I had to figure out all sorts of things and try and find out who I was in the absence of my parents and the friends that I'd grown up with. But also I think it's a hugely vulnerable stage of your life in the sense that you know, I'm in my 40s now. There's, I don't flatter myself I could handle everything, but I have, I feel I've developed, you know, just out of having 25 years in the adult world, a fairly good 
grasp of you know defense mechanisms and understanding of how difficult situations can go and understanding of how to diffuse things you know when I was 18 I didn't have any of that experience I just sort of blithely went out into the world and it threw myself into situations that looking back I'm I'm impressed by my bravery and also horrified by how it could have turned out and you know I'm very glad I did all of that but at the same time I don't think I had an understanding of what I was taking on when I took some of my challenges which is you know it's right because that's a time of your life when you should be fearless and foolish and brave and tackle challenges that you are very ill-equipped to to deal with let's be honest (laughs) but all of that does make an interesting point to set a a, you know a thriller that rests on a single moment because of course Hannah has gone out into the world as someone who is fearless and brave and you know taking on things that she's not equipped to deal with and what happens is something you know basically the worst thing happens almost you know and it completely changes who she is and and just at the moment when she should be you know spreading her wings and and being brave and foolish something happens that makes her go back into her shell and that's april's death um but of course then i needed to find um a point for the after stage of the narrative that sort of counterbalanced that and i think that for me the two turning points in my life and in some ways they sort of um reflect each other but in sort of opposite ways um was leaving home as a as a student but then having um my first kid and you know suddenly the freedom that I'd spent 10 years getting used to (laughs) you suddenly go from having all the time in the world and all the choices in the world to uh, having no freedom whatsoever you're tied to this very vulnerable little child who you can't leave for more than a few minutes at a time and it was an enormous shock to my system in a good way. Um, but I, and it's also, you know, pregnancy, I think if you're someone who's, you know, relatively able-bodied and lucky enough not to have too many health problems, it, it's often the first time in your life as an adult that you remember what it's like to be vulnerable and to not be able to do the stuff that you take for granted and to have to think twice before you jump off a bus or you know run for the train or or do any of the things that you would normally do so it just felt like the two felt like they counterbalanced each other quite nicely absolutely that makes perfect sense too so we're continuing talking about story decisions in general you have these two timelines you've got all these characters and all of these red herrings and and the whodunits and all the details. Can you talk about how you approach putting it all together in there? Because I just can't imagine how, like if I took a a picture of your brain, it's probably (laughs) dots and lines all over the place to pull it all together. But how did, how did you work it through? I always wish I had a more fancy answer for this because actually (laughs) the truth is I don't, I don't plot a bunch. I do think about my books a lot before I start writing them. Um, And this one was no exception because it came out of lockdown. So I had a year of, um, you know, I've written a book a year pretty much ever since my first book came out. And 2020 was the first year when I, I didn't write a book. And that was because like, 
many other people. I was homeschooling my kids and baking banana bread and rocking in a corner and crying and doing whatever <laughs> else it was we did for nine months, <laughs> remembering oh, why I didn't want to be a teacher. And my husband is a virologist, so he was really not able to be much help at all. He, you know, just disappeared onto a Zoom call at the beginning of the pandemic and, according to my memory, didn't come off it for, you know, the next sort of year and a half. Um, but, yeah, so I did, I did not have a book out. I didn't write a book in 2020. Um, but, of course, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking about things. You're mulling over characters. So I think this was one of my fastest books to write. And actually, that was because quite a lot of it, I'd sort of figured out how I wanted it to go. But generally, the way I write is I have a, a set of characters who I think about beforehand. I usually have the setting in mind. And then I know who did it and generally how and why. And then in between, I'll have a few scenes that I want to write like um this book I knew that Hannah would be pregnant I had some scenes I wanted to include regarding that I had some scenes at university the strip poker scene that which happens quite early on in the book was one that I knew I wanted to write that was always going to be there <laughs> so there were a few kind of beats like that that I knew I wanted to include but I don't I don't write anything down I don't plot I don't have I don't keep timeline diagrams really I just had a few notes about Hannah's pregnancy because that like you don't want her to be 25 weeks in one scene and then you know eight months in the next <laughs> but no but beyond that I just kind of play it by ear and sort of like I think oh you know it'd be nice if we got to this scene fairly soon and how could I make it plausible that this would then happen and and just yeah just make it up as I go along well, that's the sign of a brilliant mind because it's all kept there, and yeah. you, you just—it could be the sign uh, of a disorganized mind. Let's be honest, but yeah, I have a, <laughs> I have a strong faith that if I forget something, it's probably because it wasn't a very good idea in the first place. So I, I trust my memory to act as a kind of triage system and only keep the good stuff. That may not be how it actually works because uh, who knows what brilliant things I might have forgotten because they're gone. But <laughs> it seems to be working so far. <laughs> I think I think it works out pretty well the way it goes. <laughs> I actually think that's incredibly intelligent because I outline in great detail and I wind up with a lot of things I need to cut at the end because they were completely unnecessary. So I should think more about that triage system. That's a great idea. So I would love to talk a little bit about underlying themes too. So I'm particularly interested in this because on our Wednesday night Friends in Fiction Facebook live show, we had on um, author and television host Tamron Hall a few weeks ago, and her debut novel is about this little girl who disappears, but the disappearance is not taken as seriously by the police as it should be because she's black. So it was really a jumping off point for a great discussion about how society categorizes and prioritizes victims. And in your book, April's murder seems to get a ton of media coverage because she's rich and beautiful and she's at Oxford and, you know, just sort of all these things. And equally, her suspected murderer, murderer is, you know, this sort of awkward, disconnected person, which seems to put that person very easily into the culprit category, right? So I found these elements and the way they influence public perception fascinating and very true to life. Did you mean to address this issue about how society sort of labels us and pre-categorizes us based on where or what we came from? Yeah, no, definitely. And in fact, I think when you write books, certainly when I write books, I'm often writing against or in reply to things that I did in earlier books. And 
the treatment of John Neville was definitely a reflection of some of the other, I can't explain this without spoiling previous books, but there were characters in earlier books that I had written who I felt had got a bit of a bum rap. And so it got me thinking about the way society tries to portray their villains in a certain way and wants to see people in a certain light and the way people who are weird and awkward and socially uneasy in the world are generally much more sinned against than sinning. And John Neville is definitely in that category. Like, he's someone who... He's not an easy person to like. He's, you know, he can be creepy. He can be overbearing. He has very few social graces. But that doesn't mean necessarily that he's a bad person. And it certainly doesn't mean that he's a murderer. But everybody is very willing to feel that he fits. You know, he makes them feel uneasy and uncomfortable. And therefore, as far as they are concerned, that means that he fits the profile of a creep. So I didn't want to make easy answers about that because in the book, he does behave in ways that are not acceptable, not just not socially acceptable, but just not acceptable anymore. And I didn't want to excuse him for that. But I suppose it was sort of trying to uneasily edge around the fact that people can be difficult to deal with in some ways, but that that isn't a green light to write them off in other ways. Um, And likewise with April, absolutely. She's the perfect victim in terms of, you know, the type of person that the press becomes obsessed with. And I, I wanted to press a little bit on that and not just the press social media as well you know social media is a theme in the book um and people's obsession with april's death is a theme in the book and how that impacts on the other people in her life um and the way that she ticks all of the boxes in terms of exactly she's she's young she's beautiful she's intelligent she's you know she's at oxford and i think i wanted to to sort of just examine a little bit the way we as a society, and I I don't want to put it all on the media because I think social media, who is after all all of us, is, is just as guilty of this. We love to put people and particularly victims into boxes. You know, we put them in, we treat them as the perfect golden girl who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and, you know, got all A's and was always wonderful to their friends or, you know, the cautionary tale, the girl who had a bit too much to drink or was a bit too much of a party girl or, you know, whatever it is. And people are rarely that simple. Um, And the way as a society we decide what kind of person someone is and we create a narrative for them and then we get incredibly angry if they don't fit that narrative if they do something which doesn't fit in with the way we feel we were led to be you know to perceive them and certainly victims of crime are often really good examples of that but I the other group that I have started to feel more and more uncomfortable about over the last few years are the it girls of the kind of, you know, late 90s, early noughties, you know, yes. the Paris Hiltons, the Britney Spears, the Tara Palmer Tompkinsons, the way those young women were first held up in the press and then destroyed because they didn't fit the way society felt they should be behaving. Yes. 
now I look back at it and it's, you know, it's just astonishing. Like the treatment that they were subjected to, you know, it, it it's completely sickening. And that was a factor in deciding to give, you know, April is the it girl of the title because she is rich and beautiful and, and ticks a lot of the it girl boxes. But it was also a little nod to the way society loves to build people up and tear them down. And it's also part of the reason why I tried to make April such a, a presence in the book. And that was, you know, it could have all been written in the in the after timeline. It could have been Hannah just looking back in memory. But I I made a deliberate decision to set a chunk of the book at Oxford so that we could see April mm. in the flesh, experience her as a person. And I tried really hard to make her as complicated and three-dimensional and complex as possible to show the way that it is very difficult to reduce people yes. to the narrative that we've assigned to them. You know, April isn't a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. She's She can be cruel, she can be irresponsible, she can be very difficult, but at the same time, she's also a really loving friend to Hannah. She's funny. She's clever. She's inspiring. She lights the room up when she walks into it. So I wanted her to be someone who it was difficult to put into a box and categorize. Um, yeah. Absolutely. That's a fascinating yeah. exploration too. Yeah. People, they're more than just their Instagram photos. Yes. Yes. Aren't we all? Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I hope. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm exactly. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, uh, Ruth, you worked in the book industry early in your career, and you have said that it gave you a bit of stage fright because you had a firsthand glimpse of at how many brilliant books were being published. You said it became increasingly hard to imagine that there would ever be a place for me on the, those heaving bookshop shelves. Say that twice. <laughs> Fast. <laughs> but you, that's what you wrote on your website. So, but by the way, for those of you who uh, haven't already visited, please visit her at ruthware.com. But back to this, I'm curious, Ruth, how did you quiet those voices of doubt in your head and begin to take yourself seriously as a writer? Well, I think there were two factors, really. One was that the first book I wrote was in a genre that I didn't work in, um, which really helped because I felt like I could sort of send it out to people who I had no connection with. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. So it felt like sort of a safe space to fail in a way. But the bigger influence was really the fact that I had kids. And, I, you know, you read a ton about, you know, the pram in the hall is the enemy of creativity and all that kind of I think I, I talk to a lot of people on Twitter who are really worried that you know they want to be a writer they want to write a book um and they feel this desperate sort of need to get published before they have kids because they're really worried that you know that it's difficult enough to find the time to write now how are they going to do it after they have kids all of which is totally valid. And I completely understand that, you know, finding time to write when you have a full-time job is hard enough, let alone if you've got kids on the side. Um, but all I can say is that for me, it was what, it was that pressure that made me seriously start to write for, with an eye to publication and, you know, woman up and, and send it out there. Um, and basically I was, you know, I had a pretty demanding job. Um, I had, uh, a toddler and 
I was on maternity leave with my uh, second baby. Um, and I realised that my writing was a hobby. You know, it was I was scribbling things in the evenings and at weekends, um, but I wasn't doing anything with it. And I realised that I didn't have time for hobbies anymore. You know, I, did, I barely had time to wash my hair most days, let alone do stuff just for me. And I thought, if I don't find a way to monetize this and keep it in my life I am I'm going to lose this I'm not going to be able to do it until the kids are you know probably at school and maybe not even then um and I so I gave myself until the end of um my maternity leave I thought I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna write a novel and I'm gonna send it out to an agent and um yeah cross my fingers and that became um yeah my first published novel so it was it was really that threat of losing um something that I love to do that made me realize that I had to 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 yeah to grab my courage and and stop being such a wuss about it it's so interesting too it's so cool so speaking of your website I we went on and started exploring it there's this amazing um murder mystery game that you put out there for people (laughs) that can play with I think it's between four and eight people can do it. And all of the different pieces are there to download and get involved. And it was, it probably was a perfect like pandemic thing to do it with, was. with friends and things, but still fun <laughs> with people, friends and family that are maybe a long distance or you just get together somewhere and do it. Can you talk about how that came to be and, and on your website? Well, so it was, it was exactly that. It was a pandemic thing. And I, I've always loved those kind of murder mystery dinner parties, um, where, you know, you each get a different part and you dress up and, you know, someone cooks a themed meal and all that kind of thing. And halfway through the, yeah, lockdown in the UK, I was sort of trying to come up with, um, ways to connect with friends and family that we could do over Zoom because we had, uh, for a long time, we weren't allowed in each other's houses at all. And then when, that was lifted you had this rule of six they called it which was um six people um who were allowed to be from no more than two households so it was really very limited and we did a murder mystery um via zoom one of these downloadable ones where everybody took a part and we all logged in over zoom and at the end of it i thought do you know what i could have written a better one (laughs) i wish wish i'd written one and then i thought well actually i'm not really i don't really have the headspace to write a novel at the moment but I probably could do one of these because they're not, you know, they're not super long. And it was really fun. I, I really enjoyed working out the logistics and the way uh, my one works is the the killer is selected on the night you could or, or beforehand you can draw it. So it changes each time. And then depending on who is the murderer, the script is slightly different. So you should be able to figure it out from the clues. But it, it, it basically it changes each time. And yeah, it was it was huge fun to write, and um, we played it over Zoom. I did uh, a live version with some other authors that um, we did to uh, publicise the launch of one of my books. And I yeah, I hope people are downloading it and playing it, but I I really don't know. So if if you have played it and enjoyed it, uh, please tweet me and let me know because it's not like a book where you sort of end up with you know reviews on Goodreads or stars <laughs> on Amazon to prove right. to you that this thing does exist and is really out there. Um, I never know whether people are doing this it's completely free and there are even some of my favorite recipes that you can cook alongside it if you want to make it into a dinner party so i, I noticed that, that. It's, it's, what a great little uh, package idea. Yeah. Just, we'll we'll get some people on it 
we'll do that <laughs> and let me know how it goes let me know if you, you probably will guess it because it's uh yeah but anyway <laughs> <laughs> we will and of course we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that being british and over the last few weeks the world's eyes have been on the united kingdom as we all struggle with the loss of your queen elizabeth ii and commemorate the beginning of the reign of king charles the third do you have any thoughts on the end of such a long incredible reign in the beginning of a new one i know it's such a seismic moment i mean i think for pretty much everybody alive in the uk now queen elizabeth is all we can remember we are you know elizabethans and being i don't even know what the word would be carolinas i've seen on on twitter it's going to be a really strange shift i i've never known a time when you know the queen wasn't on stamps uh, or coins or banknotes or you know hmrc has always stood for her majesty's uh, revenue and customs i guess you know james bond will no longer be on her majesty's secret service it will have to be his majesty's oh it would it's just like it's just i don't know how we'll ever get used to it but it feels like we have had so much change and so much loss um over the last few years that i think that's partly why we've seen such an outpouring of emotion it, there, there's a lot bound up in this moment that is actually nothing not just to do with the Queen. And I think a lot of people are, are, are mourning a, a lot of experiences over the last few years uh, that we've seen have been sort of bound up in, in this moment. So, yeah, it remains to be seen how Britain moves on from this. What's <laughs> up forward? I know. And I was so moved by people in the queue being interviewed and, and they talked about the things that they brought with them. And, and the, just those little stories really are indicative of the, the larger feeling of the country. I love that we can just say the queue and nobody, like we don't even need and to specify. Maybe, you know, if anyone's listening to this in, in 30 years time, perhaps we should specify <laughs> that there, there was actually quite a large queue to visit the Queen lying in state before her funeral. Yes. Um, and it's to the extent that the BBC had to add it to their list of weather forecasts. You know, it was like London <laughs> And Manchester, Birmingham, the queue, and it would tell you like what the what the weather was going to be in the queue. Should you be queuing overnight, it'll be you know going down to minus one or whatever it was. So yeah, that's amazing. That's true. I, it's such a detail they gave about yeah. how long the line was like five miles at one point and how many hours and yeah, really people just, were queuing just, for like twenty four hours. It was uh, yeah, it was it was pretty wow. remarkable. I have to say, I did not want to do that. Uh, I don't envy anyone who did it, but you know, I think for the people who did, it seems to have been an incredibly meaningful experience. So, yes, you could see it. You could see it in their faces. And... Ruth, what about the fact that sort of the whole world is mourning with you? You know, it's something that's so personal to your country, but I think the world over, we we all feel this grief and this sorrow because she's all we've ever known. Also, I mean, our, our everyone across the world has, you know, for the most part felt, you know, she's the queen that's defined our lifetimes too. Well, in a lot of ways, that has been really heartwarming because I think Britain's relationship recently, particularly with Europe, but, you know, which in general with uh, with many overseas countries has not been as easy recently as it used to be when I was uh, younger. And, you know, it, it's been really moving to see people like President Macron in France, you know, his speech about what Queen Elizabeth meant to him and to the French people was just lovely. And it has mm. felt, you know, speaking personally, it's felt really comforting to feel like actually 
there is still some affection there in spite of, you know, sort of all of the awful things the UK has done over the past few years and, and the prickliness in both directions of some of the, you know, relationships that have sprung up. So, yeah, that's been very moving and lovely to see. It's it's always so nice to see the world come together, even if it's for a sad reason, you know, and I feel like I feel like we've really seen that here. Well, Ruth, it has been so lovely to have you. Um, it's just been such an enjoyable conversation. Yes, yes, yes. It really has. But before we let you go, we've already mentioned RuthWare.com and that awesome free murder mystery game. But is there anything else you can tell readers about where they can find you online or on the road in the coming months? Well, I will. I'm always online. My handle on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at RuthWareWriter on all three. I'm not on TikTok. Well, I am, but only in the sense that I've claimed my username just in case someone <laughs> else pretended to be me. But uh, yeah, if you see anyone uh, TikToking as RuthWare, it is probably not me. Um, but yeah, also I have a book club on my website which people can join and sign up to and they get a bunch more stuff including some free stories and access to a a secret q a page full of spoilers so yeah please come and find me i love to chat and uh, yeah <laughs> well that sound you hear is me signing up for the book club <laughs> please do <laughs> I love it. So, ruth we're so thrilled that you joined us today we love chatting with you about your career your life and of course, the It Girl, which we hope all of you out there will be inspired to pick up. So thank you again, Ruth, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. I know that you're, everyone's going to love this book as much as Kristen and I did. And this book, along with all of our past guest books, are available at the friendsandfictionbookshop.org page. Just visit there. It's a great way to save a little money and support indie booksellers. Thank you again, Ruth, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. If you're enjoying our conversations, please tell a friend. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.